Retrogram, Revisiting TV Futures from the Past. An examination of yesteryear's television science fiction, fantasy, spy-fi, horror, and superhero shows. Commencing Retrogram. Program number 2130. This and that episode. The week of July 26, 2021. Welcome back to Retrogram, a podcast from thelogbook.com that is fundamentally about classic genre TV from the 1970s and 1980s. Sci-fi? Got that covered. Superheroes? Oh yes, frequently. Fantasy? Yep. Spy-fi? It has been known to happen. Horror? We cover that frighteningly often. Except for this installment. As some of you know, I also handle podcast and livecast production for Roddenberry Entertainment, where I do a lot of work on Mission Log and Mission Log Live that, if I've done it right, is all but invisible. I have a slightly more visible role on the Daily Sci-Fi 5 podcast there as a writer and occasional voice, which, by the way, you can check all of these out at podcasts.roddenberry.com. But with all three shows going full tilt simultaneously for the first time since February, I'm not going to lie, I'm kind of exhausted. And it also does not help that my air conditioning is not working in the hottest summer we've had in quite a while. Uh, The uh, air conditioning in my place that I rent, which is also my home office and my recording studio, um... Well, let's use the day that I'm recording this as an example. Earlier today, when the outside temperature was at its hottest, the coolest, the AC could manage to keep the interior of the building was 90 degrees. I've suddenly accumulated a vast collection of $22 oscillating fans from Walmart, and... Yeah, so kind of a kind of a noisy environment, not ideal for recording. Even though I have some skeletal outlines for various episodes of Retrogram in progress, and even a couple of weeks picked out where I've watched one show out of three or something like that, I realized I wasn't going to be able to muster a full show on time, and for that you have my apologies. But there is a lot going on related to some of the shows in the Retrogram wheelhouse. One of the really big news items, especially for you fans of Kolchak the Night Stalker, is that Kolchak, the entire series, not just the two two original TV movies, the Night Stalker and the Night Strangler, but the weekly series such as it was, because it only lasted one season, is finally arriving on Blu-ray with fresh 2K transfers on everything, which basically 2K is half of 4K, so it's a fancy way of saying it's HD, finally. They've re-scanned the film. They've re-scanned the film for the promos that were put together for ABC to run. Now that 
that's impressive. As someone who used to write and produce TV promos for a living, that just that just hits me right in the heart. That warms the rusty cockles right there that they are going to those lengths. There are also going to be commentaries on every episode with various people. Some of them are, are fairly well-known, such as Kim Newman. Um, quite a few are less well-known. Uh, you know, I think they have some... Uh, some hosts of Kolchak-related podcasts contributing, which that's cool, too. I mean, it doesn't have to be the same the same person on every on every episode. Let me see. What else do they have here? This, this is being released by Kino Lorber, by the way, um, which really, as, as far as on this side of the Atlantic, uh, they are kind of the premier producers of series upgrades to Blu-ray. I also have their Blu-ray of Buck Rogers in the 25th Century that was released late last year, and it is worth every penny. They also have a new interview with David Chase, who co-wrote eight episodes of Kolchak, but then went on to create The Sopranos. Talk about uh, two things that you just generally don't bring up in the same sentence. The street date for this is October 12th of this year. Kino Lorber's website, kinolorber.com, they're already taking pre-orders. As soon as this shows up on Amazon, as soon as it is possible, I will have the Kolchak the Night Stalker Blu-rays in the logbook.com store for those of you who want to procure it that way. Um, I am definitely looking forward to this release. Now, not remastered, not rescanned because it was shot largely on video, but one of my all-time favorite UK sci-fi series is coming to BritBox, and that, of course, is Terry Nation's Blake 7. Now, I've spoken about Blake 7 before on the show as we've touched on individual episodes. Um, really, for, for my purposes, Blake 7 is the beginning of serialized sci-fi television in live action. The Japanese had done some serialization in such early anime series as Gachaman and... Space Battleship Yamato, but Blake 7 is where that is translated to actors on a stage remembering things that happened in previous episodes because you know the audience remembers. The audience remembers this stuff all the time. And so Blake 7 would incrementally layer things into its universe and, you know, you wouldn't suddenly have lead characters using you know, this two-factor authentication system of reciting chess moves over their communicators when that has never happened before, but suddenly it's a thing in this one episode. So that that doesn't happen in Blake 7. It is coming to the BritBox streaming service, and guess what? BritBox is available as an Amazon video channel. So for those of you who want to see Blake 7 from beginning to end 
and you really should watch it cold. Um, there's a reason as much as I want to. I mean, I could just do a whole podcast about Blake 7, but I've resisted the urge to do that or to spoil it by much because it really deserves to be experienced the way audiences experienced it between 1978 and 1981. Is it a little campy? Yes. Is it a little disco era? Yes. Not as much as Buck Rogers, though. I, I should point that out. But it is coming to BritBox. You can sign on for BritBox through our links at thelogbook.com. Uh, you can either hit those links at thelogbook.com slash store or thelogbook.com slash retrogram. It matters not. Get signed up. Blake 7 is coming to BritBox. And you can finally see it for yourself instead of just hearing me talk about it endlessly. Now, another place that Blake 7 has thrived long after the end of the original television series is in the form of audio plays produced by Big Finish Productions. Now, in recent years, especially with the death in 2018 of Paul Darrow, who was arguably the leading man of the show after a while. I mean, there is a character named Blake who is in the show for much of its run, but he doesn't stay for the whole run, and Paul Darrow as Avon kind of becomes the focus point of Blake 7. Paul Darrow died in 2018, and that really kind of brought Big Finish's series of Blake 7 audio dramas to a screeching halt. Now, they had been able to get around the earlier death of Gareth Thomas, who played Blake, by setting their audio stories later in the series, at which point it's basically Avon's show. But how do you carry on? Well, the answer has already arrived in the first two box sets of what is loosely being called the Worlds of Blake 7, being produced as full-cast audio dramas by Big Finish. The first two box sets focus on the character of Avalon, who appeared in a single episode of the first season, but was said in that episode to be a a rebel leader on about an equal footing with Blake. We never really saw anything to back that up. These box sets give you something to back that up. They, you know, they show you Avalon being kind of a badass in her own right without Blake around. There are familiar characters who do show up in the stories, but it is not focused on the crew of the Liberator. It is not focused on Blake or Avon. It is taking the very richly layered universe that was constructed over the course of this show and it is fleshing those layers out into their own stories because really continuing the the central focus that the television series had on the crew of the Liberator wasn't really a viable option any longer. So they have some upcoming titles that are extremely intriguing. I'm really jazzed by the upcoming box set focusing on the characters of the Clone Masters, who also appeared in a single episode in Season 2, but were really intriguing because, number one, 
we found out later that Callie's people, the Aurons, also had cloning technology. And so there's kind of a question of, okay, is there any relation between the two? And the other thing is the box artwork for the Clone Masters. Both Stephen Greif and Brian Croucher appear as Travis in the same storyline. That's really intriguing because it really makes you wonder if they are going to set up some plot-driven reason for the fairly significant difference in the two actors' portrayals of the same character. So that's coming up from Big Finish. There is some stuff that has already come out from Big Finish that I want to talk about as well. Let's talk Space 1999. Now, when Big Finish started doing um, Terrahawks audio dramas earlier, <laughs> earlier in the last decade, I thought it was kind of interesting that Anderson Productions is now run, and, you know, Jerry's legacy is basically managed by his son, Jamie. I thought it interesting that Anderson Productions and Big Finish were now collaborating on things, and I kind of wondered if, at some point, they might remount Space 1999, because they had done something similar... Big Finish had done something similar with another ITV show of some note called The Prisoner, where basically they retold the story from scratch, partially using the scripts from the original television series, but also layering in stories of their own invention. And I thought their take on The Prisoner was very intriguing, and their take on Space 1999 has proved to fit that description as well. The first Space 1999 release was a basically a two-hour pilot episode of the series, and it is, it is based largely on the television script for that, but it expands and elaborates on what's going on, and that's a good thing because, as you well know, when Space 1999 premiered in 1975 on television, Isaac Asimov immediately took to the pages of the New York Times to explain why the the science of the show, which involves the moon getting thrown out of Earth's orbit, was just utter nonsense. The Big Finish take on Space 1999 goes a long way toward justifying that element of the plot, because that still has to happen even in the audio version. The moon has to leave Earth's orbit. Although, of course, Asimov is right, a bunch of nuclear explosions on the near side of the moon would not necessarily act like rocket thrust pushing it out of orbit. But the audio version of the story suggests that something else was going on the whole time, undetected at first. And that's that's a really smart development, because, you know, you're... You're sort of adding in, um, let, let's just say that it has to do with the signal from the pilot episode of the TV series that is being received from a planet that was about to, a mission was about to launch to visit that planet to investigate that signal. Well, it turns out that signal has a lot to do with the moon being 
pulled out of Earth's orbit. And there's also something else interesting in the audio version that you never got on TV, which is, rather than just worrying about the people in the moon base, there is also serious concern about the effects on Earth of the moon no longer being there. The tides are not going to happen. Um, moonlight is not going to be a thing, so the sky is going to be super dark all the time. You know, what does that do to life on Earth? Not just to humans, but what does it do to animal life that has always depended on the glow of the moon being there to help it see at night? Things like that. The first box set, consisting of three episodes, adapts a couple of the TV scripts, but also throws in a third script, which is it's a completely new story. One of the delightful things about the reimagining of Space 1999 in audio form is that if you remember from the original TV series, the pilot episode had this very officious administrator character named Simmons, played by the late, great Roy Dotris, who was just a thorn in everybody's side. And then he only shows up in one further episode called Earthbound, which disposes of him. Um, you know, in a very satisfying way, I have to admit, but there's really no build-up to that. He's, you know, he's there in the pilot, it's unlikely that this character who is challenging Commander Koenig for command of the moon base, basically, throughout the pilot, it's unlikely this character is going to slink into the background and sulk until it's time for his exit. So he is a part of these remakes of episodes that did not originally feature him, and he's kind of, he's kind of like Dr. Smith from Lost in Space. He continues to be a pain in the butt. And yet, at the same time, they're not making a villain out of him, you know? They're not making him so annoying that you want to chuck him out of an airlock. They are, you know, they're showing their homework. This is why this guy is arriving at these decisions and doing these things that maybe are not really helping anyone. <laughs> so... I can highly recommend to you the Big Finish Productions audio dramas of Space 1999. The, uh, the casting is spot on. They've, they've done a couple of uh, gender swaps. Uh, Kano, who was the computer expert in the original TV series, is no longer a dude. And that's okay. Because if it's all dudes, most of them with British accents, you're going to lose track of who is saying what to whom very quickly. So... I fully endorse, you know, their very, their gender swaps are very low impact. You know, it's, uh, it's not like Victor Bergman is suddenly a woman. So Victor is still Victor. Koenig is still Koenig. Helena Russell is still Helena Russell. And boy, she has a fine line in sarcasm that Barbara Bain really didn't get to play on TV. She's in the... In the adaptation of Breakaway, the audio adaptation, oh boy, she's sweary. She's very Scottish. <laughs> it's wonderful. Other Space 1999 news. While we are on Moonbase Alpha, Eagle Moss Hero Collector, 
who, of course, has kind of made its name doing the Doctor Who figurine collection, which is, you know, sort of a monthly release of little Doctor Who figurines. And, of course, a very similar long-running series of ship models from the various Star Trek series. They have got the Space 1999 license, and they are now doing the Eagle spacecraft models in varying configurations. I think the first two are the standard Eagle. You know, the one you see Alan Carter crash somewhere every week, and yet somehow it flies off again. And I believe the second one is a Rescue Eagle, which has, you know, kind of a different paint job, some slightly different details, but it's still basically an Eagle. There has been some criticism of these that the, you know, that open superstructure along the spine of the ship is, you know, is too thick. It's not true to the series. Okay, let me throw some numbers at you to explain why that's permissible. Eagle Moss is putting uh, 10-inch long Space 99 Eagles on your desk for... I I think it's about 80 bucks a pop. That's a pretty big model. And most of it, you know, a lot of it's die-cast metal. There is some plastic to it. And there's always a stand that comes with it. And, of course, their usual customary magazine that goes into the design decisions that went into the original filming models. Eagle Moss puts that on your desk for 80 bucks. If you go and try to find some of the die-cast models that have been made for the European market and try to get them imported to the U.S., you are looking at $150 to $250 for a little model. So it's um, it's a welcome development, believe me, because I can dream about possibly saving up 80 bucks for an eagle to sit on my shelf somewhere. Um, one of those 200 buck models? Uh-uh. <laughs> Not going to happen. Not doing that for a little model spaceship. So, just just putting that out there. The Eagles are back. You can get them. Um, kind of pricey still, but it could be worse. It could be a lot worse. Other merch news... Basic fun. Now, if you've watched my uh, YouTube Phosphor.Fossils videos, you know I've talked about basic fun before. They do these um, little miniature arcade games. You know, Pac-Man, Ms. Pac-Man, Galaga. Uh, they did Fix-It Felix Jr. from the Wreck-It Ralph movies. They've done Frogger, Centipede, Dig Dug. I'm looking over here at my shelf. Hubert. Frogger, I already mentioned Frogger, Joust, Galaga, bunch of them. There's some of them I don't even have uh, because I've kind of had to <laughs> put expanding that collection on pause over the past couple of years with all of the uh, all of the cross-country moving. I wanted to see if the machines I already had collected uh, would survive all that before I invested in any more of them. Anyway, these little machines are something like seven inches tall. They have little full-color OLED screens in them, little tiny joystick controls, tiny buttons. They play a very good game, generally, of what they are bringing home. 
and I kind of consider them to be the the direct descendants of those wonderful Coleco mini arcades I used to pile up a collection of as a kid. Those things, that, those tabletop games that took 4C batteries. These mercifully <laughs> use AA batteries, which last a lot longer. And the gameplay is a lot more faithful, to say nothing of the graphics and sound. Basic Fun is now making tiny TV screens with the same OLED displays. They're called Tiny TV Classics. And there are four of them available so far. And the the thinking behind the Tiny TV Classics is this. It's a little model TV, an era-appropriate TV for the show that is being represented. So... You know, a show from the 60s, you get a 60s-style TV. A show from the 90s, you get something that's uh, just the side of a modern HD TV. There's a little remote included with each one, and it is preloaded with a selection of scenes in full color with sound from the shows being represented. There is a tiny TV classic for the 1966 Batman series, which is primarily why I'm mentioning it here. Now, we don't cover the 66 Batman series on Retrogram because kind of our cutoff points are 1970 and 1990, but these things are really cool. I mean, the the sound is as good as a speaker that size is going to be able to deliver, and the video is crunched down for this tiny screen. I actually think the screen may be tinier. But these are really awesome. And <laughs> they scale really well with action figures, I should point out. So they, um, you know, if you have some sort of diorama set up, if, if you have your Batman action figures, he could sit there and watch himself on TV. There are also Tiny TV Classics for South Park, Friends, and, okay, now here's the one that really threw me off. Back to the Future? That, that wasn't even a TV show. That was a movie. So I'm not sure what the thinking is there. I, I could see room for a vast collection of these. Uh, let's talk classic Twilight Zone. Let's talk original Star Trek or Next Generation. Or, hell, all the Star Treks at this point. Um, Doctor Who, you could do one per Doctor. You could do one for John Pertwee and one for Tom Baker, etc., etc. Animated shows. Masters of the Universe is back in the conversation right now because of the Netflix series, uh, Masters of the Universe Revelation, G.I. Joe is never far from the conver the cultural conversation, if you will. Transformers. Um, I think it would be really funny. I don't collect um, Masters of the Universe stuff myself, but if you had, you know, a figure of He-Man, you know, kicking back, cracking open a cold one, watching his own show, inviting Orko and Man-at-Arms over for pizza, that would be great. So... I'm hoping that the Tiny TV classics kind of take off. And yet at the same time, I also acknowledge that these are less interactive than the basic fun mini arcades. So these might not take off. In more general pop culture news, hmm, pop culture. 
It was my privilege recently to help Vic Sage of the Pop Culture Retrorama site move the entire contents of that site over to the logbook.com server. Vic is dealing with a new job that is kind of eating up all of his time. And so he is stepping back from podcasting and stepping back from writing about retro pop culture matters for a while. I have a feeling he'll be back myself. At some point, he's going to miss it. That's my prediction. So you can now go to thelogbook.com slash popcultureretrorama or to make it really easy, I've added it as a link that appears on every page of the site. It's up in the upper on a desktop browser. There's a little link that says click here for the new home of Pop Culture Retro Rama, and it takes you there, and you can go through the back catalog. We're still having to rematch some graphics and images to their respective articles, and that will take a bit of time. But the plan is, some of us will continue adding to the legacy of that site. So this isn't just an archive, it's kind of a new home. Um, I know there was quite a bit of audience crossover between Pop Culture Retrorama and The Logbook, so it seemed to me like a natural fit. So, just putting that out there... It's it's all been saved, it's all been preserved, and you can go read all of it. It's still there, and I'm very happy to have, um, you know, helped to preserve that stuff that so many people uh, poured a, lar a large amount of work, a lot of their heart and soul into. So that is it for this somewhat abbreviated edition of Retrogram. I'm going to try to climb back on the horse as soon as I get used to the sudden increase in my own work schedule. And Retrogram will be back. Select Game is going to be back fairly soon. Mark my word on that. Uh, one of the things that has kind of caused my own recent podcasting to hit a snag is that I decided to move my entire setup out into my living room so it could be under a ceiling fan because the air conditioning just isn't cutting it. So, you know, I've got oscillating fans out here, although I have them turned off so I can record, and it, it is already making podcasting a very sweaty business. I have oscillating fans. I have the ceiling fan going. It's not totally miserable to sit out here for the length of time that it takes for me to work my day job and my duties for Roddenberry from home, you know, because I'm also vehicle-free at the moment, which is a whole different saga that I won't bore you with. But I'm here a lot. It, it needs to be comfortable, and it also needs to not be overheating the computers that make all of this podcasting and podcast editing and other stuff that I do from home happen. You know, I apparently introduced a couple of <laughs> problems for myself to solve in the course of moving everything, rewiring it, setting it all back up, and um, so I'm still getting that sorted out before I try to even think about resuming um, 
the logbooks podcasts at anything resembling a normal pace. Uh, one casualty of that was an edition of Don't Give This Tape to Earl, which was about 50% recorded. That was more like 65% recorded right before things started going down with vehicles and remote work and air conditioning. And I kind of hit pause on that, and now I'm going to have to go back and re-record large chunks of it that are now wildly out of date. They would have been perfectly fine at the beginning of July, <laughs> but it's the beginning of August now, so um, not so much. I will get that completed and rolled out at some point, because that one is at least partially done, and that means a lot of the work is already in the can. Before we go, we pause, not for station identification, but for a word from our sponsors. Ashley Thomas is the nerdy blogger. Ashley has a master's degree in literature and language, as well as a decade's worth of experience in writing for web publications. If you're looking for someone to assist you with copy for your website, blog posts, email campaigns, web store, social media management, or assistance with search engine optimization, Ashley's your gal. Ashley also spends her time writing about film, television, and comic books, contributing to such sites as Fangirlish.com and PopCultureRetroRama.com. You can learn more about Ashley and the work she does at nerdyblogging.wordpress.com, where you can contact her for more information about her writing services. The Nerdy Blogger is proud to be a supporter of thelogbook.com and its podcasts. So that's it. Hopefully... We will be back up to full strength soon. In the meantime, the Retrogram podcast was written and hosted by Earl Green. The show's theme music was composed and performed by Jazar and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find his work at betterwithmusic.com and at freemusicarchive.org. If you like Retrogram, give a big thanks to the logbook.com's Patreon supporters. If you love Retrogram, become one of them. Every little bit helps keep thelogbook.com and its podcasts and videocasts going. You can be like Philip, Kevin, Ferg, Darwin, Cindy, Paul, Mark, Charles, and or Ashley. You can be like all of them at the same time. Be like a gestalt entity. And either way, you can sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash thelogbook. If monthly contributions are not your thing, we totally get that too. You can buy us a coffee at ko-fi.com slash thelogbook and help us out there as well. You can also support the site by buying t-shirts, other clothing and household goods, and even face masks because thanks to some folks out there, we still need them. From our store at thelogbook.redbubble.com with designs featuring everything from classic Odyssey 2 games and classic space missions to, you guessed it, hashtag floaty robot buddies. You can order all sorts of things from Amazon and eBay through our affiliate links at thelogbook.com slash store. And if you like watching stuff, I mean, what are the odds you're listening to a TV podcast? What are the odds that you like watching stuff? You can feel free to sign up for Paramount Plus or Hulu through our links, and if you decide to stay as a subscriber to each, or either, not to each, not to both, no purchase necessary, that helps the logbook and Retrogram out a lot. Retrogram is a production of thelogbook.com. <laughs>